You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our text this morning is from the book of John, verses, uh, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who who, uh, it was, for Jesus had withdrawn withdrawn, uh, as as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, and nothing worse, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to keep going through our study in the Gospel of John with you. So if you're not in John chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. And I want to start by um, uh, giving sort of a, a preface or a... Uh, clarification as we head into the story. It's going to be important because we're going to be analyzing some of the characters in this story and trying to see what God would be teaching us about ourselves then. So the Bible teaches on one hand that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over all the world. He's sovereign, sovereign over all the happenings of mankind. God is absolutely the ruler of all things. And secondly, the Bible also teaches us that God's grace like his pursuit out of his loving kindness is powerful, it's triumphant. When that grace is applied, he secures, he seals, he draws to himself. The Bible teaches that on one hand, God's absolute sovereignty and his power to secure. But on the other hand, the Bible also teaches that we are responsible that we are self-determining creatures, that we have free agency, that we are held responsible for our response to God, like for our obedience. Uh, And furthermore, it teaches that we can reject God's grace, that we can resist God's grace. And so these two ideas, God's sovereign, His grace is powerful and triumphs, yet we're responsible and we can reject and, and we have free agency. These two realities that the Bible teaches for a long time has confounded people, and for a long time it has confounded me. And I have basically uh, resigned to the point where everyone else who has beat their head against this wall, this mystery has resigned, which is that it is a mystery. We can't really understand how these two things meet in the middle and how they make sense. The Bible doesn't, doesn't uh, teach us like that middle line, that gap. It just 
tells us to live in that tension, to accept the mystery that God is absolutely sovereign and we are totally responsible, that God's grace pursues and secures, but at the same time, we can resist and reject. And I love, actually, that the Bible tells us these two uh, things, this paradox that we're invited to live in and believe in. I love that because, on one hand, it allows us, it frees us to uh, cling to God's sovereignty when we're suffering. When things are not okay, we can trust that God has a plan, that, that God knows what he's up to. But on the other hand, when we see injustices, when we see people do horrible, grievous things, we also can hold them responsible because they are responsible. So the Bible, this paradox, this mystery, God's sovereignty, our free will, it gives us the freedom to emphasize one or the other at certain points, to really, um, to really focus in on and meditate on and analyze one of these things at a time. And so this story that we're in today is inviting us to really meditate on our, our uh, response to God's grace. It's emphasizing our voluntary response to God's pursuit of us. Uh, it's, it's, it's highlighting our rejection of God's grace. And so what we're going to see is three things. Uh, this, this story is a caution for us. It's an invitation to invite us to examine our own life and see Am I resisting God's grace? Am I keeping God at a distance when he is trying to actually heal me thoroughly? So three things about God's grace we're going to see today. There's a wrong response to God's grace. That first point's going to have three subpoints beneath it, just so you know. So the wrong response to God's grace, the danger of the wrong response to God's grace. But thirdly, we have a hope of God's grace even still. So the wrong response to God's grace, the danger of this wrong response, but also the hope of God's grace. So before we go ahead and study this passage, let's bow our heads and ask God to be with us right now. Father, we come to you and we ask that you teach us, that you give us the courage and the humility to examine ourselves today and to not believe that we have it all together. God, I pray that you will not let us leave here believing that we have arrived. Each and every one of us is being pursued by your grace. You have made your heart and power available to each one of us, God, and at some level, in some way, we are resisting you. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us, guide us to a point of self-clarity and understanding so that we can repent, so that we can release the things that we're holding tightly to ourselves and away from you and totally just collapse and melt into your grace and let you win and let you triumph because God, what you are intending to do within us, the work, the deep work you want to do, not just externally, but God, but, but inside of us in the most central part of who we are, God, you want to make us more like your son. You want to cause us to be holy like he is holy, to think like he thinks, to feel like he feels, to live like he lives. When we look at Jesus, we see nothing less than just the flourishing life that trusts you and obeys you. And God, that's what our heart is. That's what we want to be. So we invite you today to teach us. We invite you into the deepest parts of us that you can challenge us and transform us, God. Give us humility today so that we're teachable and that we're flexible to you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so there is a wrong response to God's grace. 
Let's go and look at that. So the story, it's uh, taking place in the northeast part of Jerusalem. You read that it's called, it's happening this place called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate is by the temple. Okay, so this is happening around the temple in Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate is this hole in the wall of Jerusalem where shepherds and sheep could pass in and go out easily through the wall of Jerusalem. And this story is taking place there at this cool pool called Bethesda, surrounded by five patios. Okay, so that's the story. You remember it was just read to you. And this, uh, there's a superstition surrounding this uh, Bethesda, this pool, that whenever it was disturbed, when there would be ripples in the water, the belief at this time was that that must be an angel stirring the water. And if you got in the water, you could be healed physically. So it was just superstition because what we know and what archaeologists know and what we've come to know is that this is actually a spring underneath this pool that's causing those disturbances. So there's no angel stirring the water, but nonetheless, that's what people believed in this time. And there's this man who's been disabled probably all his life, 38 years, waiting by the pool on one of these patios to be able to get in the water to be healed. So Jesus approaches this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. And this is what the man replies. This is how he replies. He says in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, we're going to see quite a bit of what this man says in this story. So we know from the, from the get-go that we're supposed to analyze him. His response to Jesus, his response to his Jewish community, this man really is the foil of the story that we're supposed to hold ourselves up against. And what many commentators, I checked out many com- commentaries on this passage, and there's a unanimous agreement that uh, this man... This response he has to Jesus, Jesus says, you want to be healed? And he says, I can't, no one helps me, everyone beats me to it. This man, he's responding in self-pity. He's responding as a victim to his situation. He he doesn't want Jesus' grace, he'd rather have a reason to complain. He'd rather be a victim in his circumstances. That's, that's what across-the-board commentators say. So the first way that we incorrectly respond to God's grace, Jesus says, hey, do you want to be healed? And he says, this is my life. This is all I've ever known. The first way we incorrectly respond to God's grace is by not preferring it. Simply by not preferring it. Because sometimes we like to live in hurt. Sometimes we don't want things to change. Sometimes we'd rather blame others and give all the reasons why things won't change instead of acknowledging the one thing that can actually change us, which is Jesus' grace. To be honest, it feels good to be a victim sometimes, doesn't it? Because when you're a victim, you don't have to take responsibility. When we feel like a victim, we can stay there where we're at and justify staying there. We feel like we have good reasons to stay there. So look, I think mental health is important. And I think there are times when uh, medication is important. And depression and anxiety, they're real clinical issues at times, but listen here. So with all that said, with all that said, I think we have more control over how we feel than we think. I think there are times when it feels good to remain in darkness. I think there are times where we prefer to remain in sadness. When we stay there, we don't have to resist anything. We don't have to deal with anything. We don't have to acknowledge anything. And if we were to begin the step towards God's grace for help, then we would also begin, we'd have to begin taking responsibility for ourselves. And that means we'd have to start dealing with stuff, looking inward, 
So it's just easier to resign to sadness. It's easier to resign ourselves to depression and only ever feel like a victim to our circumstances. But the truth is that you have more control over how you feel than you know, than you think. So we're more medicated than ever before as a society. America is the most medicated society on the globe right now. We have doubled our spending on anti-anxiety medication the last two years. 25% of people between the ages of 13 and 18 struggle with an anxiety disorder that is at the intensity level of psychiatric patients in the 1950s. Medication has a time and place. Mental health is real, but medication, it's like training wheels that should get us to a place of real health. What I'm trying to say is this, this phenomenon, this, this national depression and anxiety shows us that we want healing of our weakness and our struggle without really dealing with our weakness and our struggle. We want to feel better, but also maintain that we're wronged, that it's another person's fault. We avoid responsibility. We avoid the discomfort of acknowledging the things that we have to deal with. But God's grace, what does the story teach us? It's reaching out. It's pulling us towards him. It's pulling us into healing. But Jesus' will is not that we experience a superficial healing. Healing, according to Jesus, is a thorough, thorough, holistic, deep kind of reality. It requires us then to partner with him in his grace, to take responsibility and begin that journey towards healing. But we, just like this man, can refrain from the pull of God's grace because we have grown accustomed to our pain. It has become comfortable there. It's become our identity. It's become all we've known. More preferable is our situation and our sadness than the work and responsibility of healing. So the wrong way, the first wrong way to respond to God's grace is to prefer to remain a victim, to not take responsibility for the things we can to partner with God in the grace that he wants to give us. But the second way that we wrongly respond to God's grace is with ingratitude. Look at verses 8 through 14. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. You notice that this man's healed, but when he's asked, hey, who told you to pick up your mat and carry it? He throws Jesus under the bus. It's the man who healed me. It's his fault. He's the one who told me to do this. Now you would think, okay, this man was just healed. After 38 years of residing by Bethesda on a patio, waiting for something to change, you would think that that man's first initial response would be it's praising Jesus, giving credit where credit is due, not shifting attention off of him, deflecting responsibility off of him to try to, to, to shun himself and isolate and, and protect himself. This man doesn't even know Jesus' name. He only knows Jesus as the man who healed him. You would think if this man was really grateful, he'd fall at Jesus' feet and kiss his feet and say, who are you? And look at verse 15. This is after he meets Jesus again. It says that that man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus 
who had healed him. So you see this right here? That this man, there's a lack of gratitude, a lack of response of praise and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for him. He's more concerned about his self-protection, about not ruffling feathers, about not being in the wrong, than he is about praising Jesus for this literally life-altering event that has just happened. And also, one other thing, you'll notice that he's in the temple. Jesus finds this man in the temple. And that's really, we might gloss over that, that, that detail, but it's really interesting and noteworthy because as, a, as an invalid, as someone who's physically disabled, he was never allowed to be in the temple for 38 years, probably for his whole entire life. And now here he is in the temple at last, finally, with his community, with his culture, doing this thing that's really, really prized to his people and to him as a Jewish man. He's in the temple but he goes away and he, he rats Jesus out. So it's not just a physical healing here. Jesus has quite literally restored to this man the life that he could never have in the fullest way you could think about it. God's grace, it should produce in us thanksgiving. And I think that's what we're supposed to see in this man. He should be floored just floored at this event that has just taken place, but he's more concerned about protecting himself. God's grace should produce in us thanksgiving, and now each one of us here have been healed in various ways. If we were to get our heads together and share stories, we could point out all the times that God has really changed us, healed us, restored us, and definitely we know that's true because he saved some of us. <laughs> we were on death, going to death. Now we're life. We're restored. We're reconciled to God, our Father. We've been, our sin's been atoned for. We're no longer underneath judgment. We've been invited into life. We have been healed in so many ways. Yet, how often when given the opportunity to praise God do we find ourselves complaining instead? How often do we neglect to give thanks to God because we have quickly forgotten, so quickly forgotten the good that he has done. You know, it takes so much, and this is at least me, I don't know if this is you, it takes so much to move my heart to a place of thanksgiving, like, like that mountaintop experience where I'm just praising God for what he's done in my life. It takes so much to move me there. It takes so very little to get me grumpy, to get me just complaining, grumbling, about the things that are not going my way. It takes so very little for me to, to redirect my focus onto all the things I don't have. A line from a sermon from, a, from an aged, seasoned pastor that has quite literally shifted my life and changed everything for me, he said this, you may have not gotten everything you wanted in life, but what do you have? You may not get everything you want in life. You might have some dreams that die. You might have some things that, you don't, that are not realized that you've always wanted. You might have to say goodbye to certain things. You may not have gotten everything you wanted in this life, but what do you have? What do you have? That line has saved me from so much self-pity, from so much cynicism, time and time again. Your life, my life, is better than we know. It's better than we think it is. For every one thing that we could complain about, we have 10 things from God that we don't deserve. God has been so good to each and every one of us. And the reality is that Christians, who should be the most joyful, light people, we're oftentimes the most grumpy and joyless people. And look, I'm not saying that bad things don't happen and we should be fake about that. 
But I am saying that God's grace has touched so many parts of our life, and we are so quick to forget it. God has been so good to us. Things could be so much worse. <laughs> when I look at my life, oh man, I'm so, glad, I'm so glad that God stepped in at certain points and redirected me, even if it was painful, even if it was like whiplash. Man, I'm so glad that God saved me for myself time and time again. And so we need to get really good. We, you and I need to get really good at recalling all the times that God has saved us, how he has applied his grace to us, how he has known better than us and redirected us. 2 Corinthians 10 says we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. We need to get really good at that. When we feel sorry for ourselves, when we feel self-pity, when we feel like we're that victim, we need to call to attention those thoughts and say, hold on a second. For every one thing I can complain about, there are 10 things I can give thanks for. Take every thought captive and submit it in obedience to Jesus. Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is admirable, think, he says, think about such things. This is a call, okay? God's grace is constantly healing constantly bringing something good and new about within each and every one of us. God is constantly at work to cause us to be like his son, to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from other people. This is a call today to receive that grace and to give thanks for it rather than turning to the few things in our life that might not be going our way. But there's still one more instance of wrongly responding to God's grace, and it's not actually in the man who is healed. It's in his community. It's in those Jewish people, those Jewish brothers and sisters of his who are telling him, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Let me remind you, this pool Bethesda that this man was at was right next to the, the temple. More than likely, more than likely, they all knew this man. He's been disabled for 38 years. If you're around the temple at all, you've seen this man a few times. You know who this guy is. And if some of them don't know who he is, they hear from his lips that he was healed. And in that instance where they, they hear from his lips that he was healed, they totally bypass that and say, but why are you, why are you carrying the mat? So their response is not, whoa, wait a minute. How is this possible? Their response is, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to do that. You shouldn't be doing that. The wrong response to God's grace, lastly, is legalism. Legalism is achieving justification by moral performance. This is what developed in Judaism. Uh, the Jewish people were so set on establishing themselves, on proving their elite status, on, on realizing who they were as God's covenant people that they, mis- they made a mistake with the law. They made the law their sense of self-worth. If they could adhere to the law and do the law perfectly, they would be important, they would be justified. And so what they did is, not only did they take Moses' law, but they added 600 extra laws on top of it, just to make sure that they were justified, just to make sure that they were impressive. And that's actually what this man is disobeying. You'd have a hard time finding a Bible verse that says what this man is doing is wrong. What he's doing, he's obeying their traditions. He's obeying the extra rules that they have made so that they could be really justified. See, God's law, just so we're clear, just so you know, God's law, the Ten Commandments, it was never meant to save us. It was never meant to, uh, to justify us. 
God's law was always meant to drive us to the reality that you and I do not have what it takes to obey God's law. We need someone else as a representative to be righteous for us, like a king was righteous for his people. And then we need to trade places with that, with that leader, that representative, like we would trade places with that lamb on the altar. We need that unblemished righteousness in exchange for our sin and our lack of perfection. That's what God's law was meant to drive us to. So the heart that is set on achieving justification through performance and rule keeping, here's what's going to happen if that's you. You will never be able to celebrate God's grace. You will never feel the freedom to celebrate God blessing other people, other people succeeding, other people moving ahead. You will never be able to celebrate. Any evidence of God's grace that you see as long as you are set on justifying yourself by your performance. The reason that's the case is because you're working so hard. You know, you're, 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 everyone can see. Everyone knows that you show up, that you're so committed, that you're so thorough and faithful. And God blesses that person over there just in an instance. He gives them the thing that you want, that you've been working for all along. If that's how grace works, then what that means is that all your efforts must not mean that much. All of your attempts to be, to be impressive and to justify yourself and be, and be seen as significant and having it all together by all other eyes around you, it must not be that impressive to anyone else or to God. If God just gives grace just like that in a moment, it's deeply invalidating. Grace for the legalist is deeply invalidating. So this is why when legalists observe other people getting grace, they're enraged. Look at verse 16. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here's Jesus giving handouts, giving free grace, free life change, and here we are on the Sabbath trying to abide by the law, trying to be impressive, trying to be different than everybody else. Look, if you're a person who's set on establishing yourself before other people and before God by your performance, then other people succeeding because of God's grace, other people being blessed by God's grace will always be unnerving. It will always disturb you and make you angry because it deeply invalidates you and all your efforts. So you know you're wrongly responding to God's grace if you love to criticize more than celebrate, if you feel anger more than joy. Now, this is especially relevant for church people like us because we love our theology and we love our doctrine and we love our way of doing things and those things are important, those things are good, but we tend to look down on other Christians. We tend to look down on other churches that don't line up in every way, that don't line up in, in every way that we do things and we do what then? We find ourselves criticizing. But a heart, listen here, a heart that is not set on justifying itself by what I know and what I do is free to celebrate any instance of God's grace. The heart that is not set on justifying itself, it, it's not defensive. It is overflowing with joy when it sees God bless, when it sees God move, when it sees God do good things. It's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. But the same morning, this, the same thing applies to all of us in here. If you can't celebrate another person's success 
which is only happening because of God's grace, then what is apparent is that you are defensive because your goodness and your effort feel invalidated. And if you get mad at God when others get what you think you deserve, then you think his grace is earned rather than given. You think that somehow you're going to earn, pull lever in heaven, receive God's blessing by morally performing. So here's the warning. Be careful. Have some self-awareness. Are you quick to celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives? Or are you quick to criticize that? Are you quick to release criticisms and just feel the freedom to, to celebrate with a light heart what God is doing? Are you moved to praise when you see God at work, or are you more moved to anger, to judgment when you see God at work? If so, you might be a legalist who is stiffening yourself against God's grace. So the wrong ways to respond to God's grace that we see in the story by not preferring it, but instead preferring to sit in our situation, not take responsibility for our situation, we can respond with ingratitude and we can respond with legalism. Now here's the real warning, okay? If this hasn't been a caution, a cautionary tale so far, now we get to the real warning in the story, which is the danger of God's grace, okay? There's a real danger if you have a superficial relationship with God's grace. If you only allow his power and his, that check that he does with his grace, his intrusion into your life, if you only allow that at a very superficial level and keep it at a distance, I'm telling you, you are heading towards a danger, very possible. The danger of the wrong response to God's grace. After this man is healed, he has this opportunity to give thanks to Jesus, to praise Jesus, and now he's in the temple of all places, and Jesus finds him. And look what Jesus says. We'll we'll review. We've read this once before. It says in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. You've been healed. You've been restored. But now look what he says. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this is interesting. What does this mean? Does this mean that sin is the reason why bad things happen to us? No, that's not the reason. The Bible teaches against that. That would be legalism. What this means is that when we refuse God's grace, when we resist it, which is the sin that Jesus is talking about. Sin no more. Stop, re- stop being slow to God's grace. Stop rejecting God's grace. He says, something worse will happen to you, to this man. Now think about that. This man has been disabled for 38 years. Jesus says, now that you're well and restored, able to walk about freely, if you continue to resist my grace, something worse than being an invalid for 38 years will happen to you. Now, what could that be? What would be worse than physical disablement? Spiritual disablement. When we refuse God's grace and only let it ever remain on the surface, never penetrate us deeply, when we improve on the outside, but never change on the inside, we're in a dangerous place. The danger here is that you think you're doing well. Uh, or that you're a good person because what you do and how you seem is improved. You seem like you're doing well. You're doing all the right things. So then your confidence, 
that you're enough is, look at all I'm doing. Look how I'm serving. Look how I have my life together. Look how responsible I am. But you never, ever think to check on the inside. Like, what's really the motivations for all your goodness? What's really the intentions behind that moral performance, that self-improvement? Because if Jesus' grace only ever touches the surface and never really gets deep down into our heart, then our motivations will always be rotten. Our motivations will be left unchanged, unchecked. And therefore, that pride, that selfishness, that need to be important, that need to be significant at whatever cost— that's still in your heart. It's just now attached to your good works. It's now just attached to that performance that is before everybody's eyes. And so you're in a really dangerous place because at least when your life is a mess, <laughs> at least when you're a train wreck, you have something before your eyes always that should call you to attention and be screaming at you, you need help. It's des- you need Jesus's grace. You need to just relent yourself to the work in, in his work in your life. But when you are improved, when you're just restored at a very, when you're, when you're healed very superficially, and you keep on going throughout life without Jesus's grace going any deeper, you're far more lost than you were when you were a train wreck. Because now you don't think you need Jesus. Now you don't think you need any outside help because you have it all together. This is why this kind of sin, rejecting Jesus's grace, puts you in a far worse place than this man ever was. This is what Matthew 12 teaches. It'll be behind me. Look what Jesus says. When the unclean spirit, so he's talking about a person who was demonized. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. This person has cleaned themselves up. They have it all together. They seem like a pretty good person. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. <laughs> and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. See, what Jesus is saying is it's possible to clean yourself up. It's possible to look good on the outside, but if you never let Jesus' grace invade you, make its home in you, let the Holy Spirit indwell in you, and begin to change you and fill you, you'll actually be far more susceptible to lies, to the enemy's deception, to believing in yourself and you'll have no need for Jesus anymore. Proverbs 29.1 says this, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will be suddenly broken beyond healing. There is a point of no return, friends. There is a point in life that we can get to, a threshold that we can cross, where, we're, where we are impenetrable to God's grace where we are so in this automatic state of I have it all together, we're so automatic in our belief that I don't need any help, that, that calcifies in your being, in your heart, and you can see it no other way than I have it all together and I don't need help. Ultimately, then, this person who trusts self, who depends on self, who is self-elevating, who is self, 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 and separating himself from Jesus, who is alienated from God, and who wants nothing to do with him really, just maybe to use him every now and then to self-improve, but not to actually be changed and transformed. That person is marching on a trajectory towards who they will be forever in eternity. So that's what hell is, friends. 
Hell is the culmination of who we're becoming all of our entire life. It's the realization of what's been in our heart all along. I don't want you, God. I want separation from you. I want alienation from you. I have it all together. I am good enough. I trust myself. And hell is the granting of that wish. Fine. You can be without me, without my presence and my love for all of eternity. Dallas Willard is a theologian, philosopher, therapist. And he says this about hell, about this idea of we're becoming more like the person we'll be forever. He says, thus, no one chooses in the abstract to go to hell or even to be the kind of person who belongs there. But their orientation towards self leads them to become the kind of person for whom away from God is the only place for which they are suited. It is a place they would, in the end, choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who he is. Whether or not God's will is infinitely flexible, the human will is not. There are limits beyond which it cannot bend back, cannot turn or repent. One should seriously inquire if to live in a world permeated with God and knowledge of God is something they themselves truly desire. If not, they can be assured that God will excuse them from his presence. They will find their place in the outer darkness of which Jesus spoke. But the fundamental fact about them will not be that they are there in hell, but that they have become people so locked into their own self-worship and denial of God that they cannot want God. So really, you are becoming more like the person you'll be forever. So if you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, not just mentally, like, yes, Jesus is real, that he was a person, but that he was God, that his claims are true, that he is the only way to be, to be saved. If you've never come to Jesus and said, okay, I don't understand everything, I don't have all my questions answered, but all I know is you offer forgiveness for the person I'm becoming. If you've never, if you've never made that decision, I warn you now today, you are marching on a trajectory to who you will be forever in eternity. Now, this sermon so far is pretty sober, I know. It's pretty serious, I know. But I want to end on a point of triumph. I want to end on a point of hope. Because although it's possible to wrongly respond to God's grace, and there's danger involved in that most certainly, there's always hope. And this is that paradox. It's possible to resist God. It's possible to be broken beyond repair. But still there is hope. (laughs) It's like I'm speaking out both sides of my mouth. And that's because the gospel does. There's always hope of God's grace. Look at verse 17. Jesus, after being persecuted for healing on the Sabbath, he explains why he did that. He says, my father is working until now, so then I am working. Now, in the Jewish tradition, in Jewish thought at this time, the belief was that, that, God, did not celebrate, that God did not observe the Sabbath. Because Imagine if God did. Imagine if God stopped working. If God stopped causing the earth to spin on its axis at the 23-degree tilt, at the right rate of acceleration, at you know, uh, uh, distance from the sun. Like If God stopped providentially governing the world, all of its state of affairs, gravity itself, I, I mean, we could go on and on. If God stopped, in, according to his steadfast love, holding everything together, We'd all fall apart. It'd all fall apart. Everything would, would be sucked up in a black hole, probably. So the belief was that God never stops working, because if he did, there'd be no hope. 
So Jesus says, because my Father never stops working, I never stop working. Now this is a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying he is God. To be the Son means he is the representative, the extension of God on earth. Jesus is God. It's a claim to divinity, but this is also the hope of God's grace. This, friends, is the hope of God's grace. Because God never stops working out of that loving kindness, out of that grace in his heart, because God never stops working, that means that God's grace is always available. It never, it's open 24-7. It never takes a break. It's never closed. It's never off limits. God's grace, it's always going to be there. It doesn't check out. It's always presented before you, inviting you into it. God's grace is always available. But it gets even better because if you go back to the beginning of the story, I want to remind you of two things. One, Jesus approaches this man, this, this man who's been disabled all of his life. Jesus isn't summoned. The man doesn't call Jesus over in faith. Jesus approaches this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. Jesus takes initiative. And then this man, he plays the victim. He, he, he would rather point to the things that are wrong that the wrong is being done to him, then take responsibility for a situation. And Jesus heals him anyway. There's no, there, I mean, in the this, in this stories, like we just read last week, when there's healing, it's usually in partnership with a person's faith. Not so in this story. There's no faith present here, but he heals anyway. God's grace is not only available, but it takes initiative and it triumphs. It does. It takes initiative and it will win out. So if God wants to secure you, change you, heal you, he will have his way. And so listen here, I know this is a paradox and a mystery, but if you're here today and God never stops working, he's guiding the events of the universe, God put you here today to hear this, that God's grace is for you, that God's grace can overcome your resistance, that God's grace does take initiative. It's not summoned. It's not like we meet God halfway. God comes to us and he brings us home. If you're here today, I have all the hope in the world for you. I know it's possible to resist. I know, it, truly. But I'm ending this sermon telling you that there is still hope for you. And I can tell you that is true also because I'm here before you. And like I said previously, how in the God has saved me so many times. Like Paul says in the epistles, yeah, every Christian should believe this. I am the foremost of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I'm telling you guys, if God has redeemed me and made me useful at all whatsoever, there is certainly hope for you. There's always hope for you. His, his grace is available. It takes initiative, it overcomes, and that grace is sitting before you right now calling you to Him. And so if you're here today, I want to I close by reading this from C.S. Lewis. He says this, Every time, please listen to this, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before and taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your, all your life, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiotic, idiocy, rage, impotence, 
and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. So it's possible, yes, we are all becoming more like the person we will be forever. Either eternal loneliness, coldness, horror and terror, or radiance and beauty and glory. We're all on a trajectory. And the hinge point that makes the determination which way you're going is your responsiveness to God's grace. Are you letting Jesus only ever do a superficial work in you? Or are you letting him do the most deep and thorough work in you? Because if that is the case, you're becoming radiant. You're becoming more like the person you'll be forever in his presence and in his glory and in his love. Let's pray. God, we just want you to do work in us and we just want you to apply your grace to us even now. So convict us of, of sin, uh, lead us in righteousness, tell us what to do, point us in the right direction, give us some self-awareness to know where we are uh, only in measure obedient to you. God, we want to hold nothing back, nothing off limits. So God, draw us in by your grace and transform us by your power, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.